The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the week ahead in markets and the longer-term outlook for investors. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Crescent, and before that, at BMO Harris Bank in Chicago. Crescent was named one of the top advisors by Barron's, and Jack was recently named Chief Investment Officer of the Year by RIA Intel. I followed his work for a long time, and I think he explains the intricacies of the markets better than almost anyone. So welcome, Jack. Welcome, Ben. And it's so good to have you both on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. And by the way, I'm also a loyal Barron's reader. We love that. Keep reading. So, Jack, it's a big week on Wall Street. We're awaiting release on Wednesday of the latest CPI report. That's a big inflation indicator. And the Fed has been locked in a do-or-die battle to tame inflation. Some think the Powell Fed hasn't done enough to stay ahead of inflation. Others think the Fed has been too aggressive in raising rates and that the economy is going to pay too steep a price for it. So a couple of questions for you. What do you expect from this week's CPI? And what do you expect from the Fed from here? Sure. So I do believe that CPI uh, is rolling over, that the peak in CPI, uh, headline CPI was in July. Uh, Last month's CPI, of course, didn't fit that script perfectly. I mean, it, it, it did edge lower, but it didn't edge low uh, as low as everyone had expected. Of course, that was a, viewed as a big disappointment. Uh, but we're seeing now, of course, energy prices down over the month. We've seen food prices down over the month, trucking, anything related to the uh, you know infrastructure, uh, global supply chain is is easing and uh, companies have inventory. So I do think that the trend in inflation, thankfully, is lower. What the Fed will do, uh, probably go at it until they really see it come down quite a bit. At least that's that's what they're that's what they're say, telling us. Uh, and of course, what they tell us and what they do uh, oftentimes may be two very different things. So, Ben, what's your take? What are you expecting from the inflation reports this week? Well, I mean, from my reading, um, it's it's it sounds pretty similar. I mean, we we've seen these uh, indexes uh, have come down, uh, but it haven't come down enough. And I think that's what uh, we're all waiting to see is just how quickly they can come down. I know that uh, it, it seems like the thing that the Fed is really concerned about are you know wages, um, and so as long as uh, workers keep making more money and that becomes kind of sticky. I guess that's where the worry comes in. Um, one thing I will note is that, uh, you know, Edgar Denny, I was uh, reading his uh, preview and he was pointing out that, um, you know, we, we also have the PPI this week uh, that'll come first on Wednesday and that that um, could actually show more moderation than the CPI because it doesn't include rent. Um, and rent could also be another, uh, he calls it a troubling component. Um, so um, I think that's uh, something to keep an eye on as well. So do you both think that Powell's on the right course? I've been kind of intrigued by the 
relatively recent arguments that the Fed is going overboard on this. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, I think, you know, keep in mind, uh, like I said, there, there are things that the Fed says and there are things that the Fed does. And I think that uh, and what I call things that the Fed says is the federal open mouth policy. Uh, and of course, uh, I like that. The federal open mouth policy, you know, we've got, you know, the, the Hulk, right? We've got uh, Chairman Powell beating his chest, saying, you know, I'm going to slay inflation. I don't care what it takes. We're going to throw everything we have at it. Um, and hopefully they won't have to throw much at it. It'll just kind of weaken on its own. Uh, I will say, you know, Ben raised the point about rent. You know, rent remarkably is a third of CPI. Thankfully, it's only about 17% of PCE. And my concern with rent, there are a couple of distortions with rent. Um, having spoken to a number of landlords, rent increases often uh, reflect the previous year's uh, cost increase, not as much expectations, although obviously there are some expectations built in. But we also have to keep in mind that there was that um, eviction uh, uh, moratorium for a long time. And so uh, many landlords, having not received all the rent that they perhaps felt they were entitled to, are now trying to make up uh, for lost ground as well. So there could be some distortions on the rent component of CPI. And given that it's a third of the basket, I'm hopeful the Fed uh, knows enough to see through that. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Do you think so the, what's uh, in terms of the market? Go ahead, Ben. Uh, I, I was going to ask, do you think the market will uh, be able to look through something like that if we get a, a blowout uh, CPI because of it? Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, you know. I'll be out there certainly uh, talking it down. But um, I don't know how much of the market uh, realizes um, you know, one is the preponderance of rent in CPI and two, uh, the, uh, you know, that backwards looking nature. So no, if we get a hot number based on rent, um, I'm going to be able to write a piece and send it around, but you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, writing for the wall street journal or for Barron's. So, well, perhaps others will pick it up and the news will somehow get out there and you flagged it for us. So thank you. So I want to turn for a moment to your business, which is managing money. Crescent is a private wealth manager founded during the bull market, like many wealth managers. And I imagine it was easier to accumulate assets and manage them well back when stocks and bonds were rising. But now that markets have turned, Jack, how do you go about protecting client assets? Sure. So uh, there are a number of ways we do it. One is through our strategic asset allocation. Uh, which we uh, we built a goals-based uh, program. So what we try to do is we start with our clients' tangible goals, oftentimes just viewed as a series of cash flows that they need to maintain their lifestyle. Now, some of our clients are still contributing to their portfolio, so they have a much longer time horizon. Others are drawing from their portfolio, so we need to align assets and cash flows. Um, and um, with that, um, you know, we have an adequate... Uh, runway, so to speak, uh, so that clients are never forced to have to sell anything uh, before they're, they're due. Um, so that, you know, for example, equities really support cash flows that are needed seven years and beyond. And uh, at least based on history, uh, we think that, you know, with a seven year time horizon, you have an 
adequate time to kind of make up for lost ground. So where do you see value in today's market? Let's take the stock market and then the bond market. Sure. So um, I, you know, I think there's probably more value in the bond market than there is in the stock market at the moment. Um, and, you know, for me, the, 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 the kind of the vagaries of the stock market are almost entirely um, directed by interest rates. In fact, if, you know, we, we published a table for our uh, advisors at the beginning of the year, and we had a whole series of 10-year treasury yields and a whole series of, uh, uh, yeah, that was along the rows, and a whole series of uh, earnings expectations, earnings growth expectations uh, of, of the columns. And if you took the, you know, we started at one and a half percent 10-year, and when you go down to 3.8% 10 year and you go to a roughly a 7% earnings growth, we almost, I mean, this table predicted down 22% almost to the, you know, to the percentage point. So remarkably, while it seems like, you know, we're in a bear market and things, you know, are, are you know, random and, and there's pandemonium out there, it's actually one of the most orderly declines I've ever seen. This is, yes, it's, you know, bear market because it's 20%. But it's really a, a correction, all based on the fact that the 10-year Treasury yield went from 1.5 to uh, to 3.8. Um, and so, um, to me, the direction of the stock market from here forward really is based on, well, what happens to the 10-year? It's really the triple B bond yield. So what happens to the 10-year rate? What happens to credit spreads? And then, of course, incrementally, what happens to earnings growth? But for the most part, by and large, uh, valuations are determined by that that ten year triple B bond yield. So, does the orderliness of the decline suggest to you that we are nowhere near capitulation yet? I yeah, I wouldn't suggest there's the you know what what this says is there isn't that much emotion uh, involved in the selling. Certainly, there's emotional byproduct, uh, but if you look at, for example, outright selling and liquidation, uh, we haven't really seen that. Um, there haven't been uh, I haven't seen a lot of forced selling like we saw in uh, March of 2020. Um, the VIX hasn't really spiked up to, you know, pandemonium levels. Um, and so for, for, you know, from that perspective, you're right. I, we haven't seen, you know, just the, uh, uh, the gut punch that, you know, forces everyone to just give up the ghost. Uh, everyone, like I said, it's it's really been very orderly based on that ten-year triple B bond yield. So you're also an investor. Crescent is in private assets, and I'm wondering what sorts look most appealing now. And do you expect private assets to become a more important part of portfolios in the years ahead? We do. Uh, in fact, our uh, private allocations, particularly in private credit, have actually delivered positive results this year. And that's, you know, marked all the way through um, through June. Um, and, um, and and so and I expect them to continue to deliver positive results. These are um, loans that banks have typically made um, senior in the balance sheet. Uh, uh, so oftentimes secured by assets or cash flows, floating rate. So, you know, as interest rates rose, um, the the underlying uh, interest rates in these loans rose with it. So as long as credit conditions stay where they are, uh, and again, these are pretty senior loans to begin with, and we're not leveraging them up, 
uh, I think we can continue to deliver positive results from private credit. Um, in terms of you know other private markets, it's hard to really tell. There isn't that much um, discover, discovery. We haven't really seen a ton of deals come, so we don't know where uh, you know valuations are in, in a lot of the you know private equity, private um, real estate. But we do also have a private equity secondary strategy. And if you think about a market where stocks, uh, public markets drop and private markets stay high, there may be a lot of sellers, particularly in the endowment space, that need to rebalance their portfolio. And so we stand ready to buy uh, limited partnerships in the secondary market in that vehicle. Yeah. Um Sorry, Lauren. Um, what I was going to ask is, you know, I keep hearing um, about uh, a need for markdowns in the private equity side of things that that really hasn't happened yet. Do you, do you think that's coming? Yeah. I mean, if you think about discovery in the private markets and, you know, I tell clients, I have a number of clients looking for uh, income producing real estate. I said the market rate is defined by the sellers. Right. That's where things are offered. If there's no bid, there's no market. Uh, and so we really need to see transactions take place to get a better sense of, you know, where some of these uh, where some of these asset classes are trading. And so for right now, you know, sellers are are offering, uh, but they're oftentimes in denial or trying to get as you know high price, of course, as they can. Uh, but until we see an, a number of transactions go through, it's really difficult to tell uh, where private equity, private real estate stands. But you're saying you would be a buyer if others want to get out of that business and, and sell in distress of some sort. Right. So what we can do is, you know, in, in private equity secondaries, uh, the nice thing about that is you're not this isn't a blind pool. Now we have a, a pool of investments. We can certainly, uh, um, you know, diligence and evaluate and know exactly what we own and uh, we would own and, and uh, you know, put a fair price on it. Uh, offer, of course, a you know what we'll call a liquidity discount, uh, and it's a it's a great for us. It it, it is a great evergreen strategy, um, and one that actually our private equity secondaries fund is is also uh, uh, delivering positive results so far this year. That sounds good. Good to balance out the stock losses. Something to grab onto, I suppose. That's right. So let's move on to talk about earnings. This is going to be a big week because third quarter earnings season kicks in tomorrow with Pepsi. The banks follow on Friday. We'll also hear from Delta Airlines. So, Jack, as you told our colleague Nick Jasinski in his recent look at investing for the next 10 years, when the quantitative easing tailwind is disappearing, we now have to pay a lot more attention to earnings growth and dividend yields. So give us your overview of earnings for the next couple of quarters, and then Ben will dive in and look at some companies reporting this week. Sure. So, um, you know, looking at our earnings growth expectations for, you know, this quarter, for example, uh, analysts are expecting about a two and a half percent year over year uh, earnings growth uh, through uh through Q3. Uh, that, of course, is supported by uh, more than nearly 125 uh, percent return in the energy sector. So if you, you know, X out energy, um, the S&P is expected, uh, S&P earnings are expected to decline by nearly 4 uh, percent year over year. But 
that's pretty much it. Uh, as we move forward into Q4 and out into 2023, uh, analysts are anticipating, you know, three, four, five percent uh, growth. In fact, next year at this time, uh, they're looking for nine percent uh, year-over-year earnings. So, um, with a balance, I mean, with uh, are they right with- or are they nuts? Well, you know, here's here's my here's my issue. Um, so if you look at just the valuation formula, right? It's earnings in the numerator, and that ten-year triple B bond yield. What I use is the denominator, and then it's sort of an earning. You know, it's kind of an earnings yield. And you know, what I found, if you if you look at at my table, what I find is a one or two percent decline in earnings growth corresponds to a one or two percent decline in the S and P five hundred. But if you can get a 1% decline in the triple B bond yield, so to go from uh, you know, 3.8 down to 2.8, that corresponds to a 25 to 30% positive return in stocks. So it is a much more powerful uh, factor. So I don't really, I guess, to answer your question, I don't really care how crazy analysts are unless they're really off in a, you know, in a different time zone. Uh, you know, taking it up, one or two percent could be solved in a day based on how this market's trading nowadays. So it all comes down to that bond yield again. It's Which all is- about interest rates. Uh, it's it is such a big factor. And I, I just don't believe that, you know, maybe I'm just looking at recent past, but given the amount of leverage, given the amount of, you know, our remember our our labor force is actually shrinking between 2020 and 2021, our labor force shrunk for the first time in our nation's history. Um, so we're not expecting a ton of growth. Um, and so, you know, unless inflation stays high and elevated for whatever reason, which I don't expect, uh, I, I, I tend to believe that the path of least resistance for the 10-year Treasury yield is lower rather than higher. All right. Welcome news. So, Ben, take us through Pepsi. The company has sort of become the Iowa of earnings season. It's the first out of the gate. The stock has done relatively well this year. It's down just 7%. What did the third quarter look like at Pepsi? Uh, Pepsi would do pretty much what you expect a uh, big consumer staple like Pepsi to do, which is it's probably going to grow earnings uh, a little bit. Um, it's expected to uh, come in at a buck eighty-five a share. Uh, that'd be up from $1.79 uh, um, a year ago. Um, the stock is down uh, just 7% this year, um, so I guess that counts as doing well. And it actually is positioned better than uh, competitors like uh, Coke um, heading into this quarter just because it has more U.S. business, um, less exposure to Europe. Um, so it's not going to have much as much of the impact of the uh, strong dollar uh, as Coca-Cola will. Um, I was reading an RBC report on them, and they're uh, thinking that uh, things are going to be pretty good. It's, you know, we always think of Pepsi as being a, a soft drink company, but actually has a huge snack business as well. Um, and so the Frito Right. Yeah. Um, and so the Frito Lay side of things uh, is expected to do well. Um, RBC's done some channel checks. I think that's going to come in just fine. International markets should be good. Um, and so they're actually expecting Pepsi to be able to come out, uh, you know, beat earnings and they'll either reiterate or modestly raise uh, their full uh, year earnings guidance, which, uh, you know, in this kind of market, that's probably good news. 
Sounds like it for sure. So we'll hear from the big banks on Friday. It has been a lousy year for mergers and acquisitions, which should hurt investment banking earnings. But what is happening elsewhere in the banking sector? Well, as you noted, uh, investment banking is going to be uh, miserable. Um, but there have been some positives. Um, you have uh, the solid net interest income that's come from uh, um, you know from higher yields. Uh, trading activity should be strong just because of the market volatility. Um, but uh, you, you do have to worry about slowing loan growth. And um, there are also some other worries that are starting to show up, um, including whether, um, you know, the, the how quick interest rates have gone up. Um, is that going to cause uh, banks to have to respond by raising the rates that they uh, give to consumers on their checking and savings accounts and cut into the net interest income? Because um, we're seeing uh, that they're just getting competition from elsewhere in ways that they haven't in a long time. Um, and we also have to worry about loan loss reserves. Um, you know, they're required to start putting aside money before the losses actually happen. We saw this during uh, COVID where they put aside a ton of money thinking that a lot of loans will go bad and then uh, very few of them did. And so they had a big earnings hit because of that. And then they had a huge boost to earnings afterwards uh, when they got to take the money off their reserves. And um, but it, you really had to almost average it out to, uh, to see what was really happening there. Um, but of course, each bank um, is different. They have their own issues. Um, and we're going to get uh, four of them on, uh, on Friday. Um, the first, uh, we're going to get Citigroup. Um, there, I think everyone is just looking to see how the transformation is going. It has a, new, a newish CEO. Um, they've been selling assets, uh, including overseas consumer banking um, businesses. Um, and people just want to know how that's going. And they also are going to want to see, um, again, back to the higher rates things, how is that translating over into revenue? Um, that's going to be a big thing for every one of the banks. Um, JP Morgan, on the other hand, has different issues. Um, Credit Suisse uh, analyst Susan Kasky was talking about, you know, management. They expect uh, management to be very, um, you know, cautiously optimistic. The cautious will be on the macro situation, but it, they're going to talk up how the bank is ready for anything that's going to ha happen, that it has a strong balance sheet, that it has earnings power, and that it can handle whatever happens. Um, and the, the big thing there, though, is going to also be ex the expense trajectory, um, she says, because that's one where... Um, they've just had to pay a lot more to get uh, their employees and that's been hurting margins and things a bit um i'll go on to wells fargo next wells fargo like, of issues it's i mean just so many issues right um mm -hmm. but uh you know that also gives them um some idiosyncratic things that can go right seaport global is noting that they're one of the most oversold banks and have one of the best risk rewards uh, going into this earnings season. But they're actually not down as much as uh, most of the others, only 13% this year. Uh, but they're very asset uh, sensitive. Um, and so they could get a boost from uh, the higher rates and things like that. Um, they, uh, Seaport also notes that the, um, the forecast for net interest margins seem very low. Um, they're actually still at 2018 levels. Um, and they think that they could be a lot better than that. Um, the, the final one, of course, is Morgan Stanley, and Morgan Stanley's really uh, reshaped its business. Um, you know that it's it's still in investment banking and things like that, but it's really transformed itself into a wealth management, investment management kind of shop. And um, really, I think that's what people are, are going to be looking for is just how well that side of the business is holding up, given the market losses. Um, 
but if they do meet their uh, earnings, uh, um, consensus earnings, which would be for about $1.50 a share, that would imply a 14.5% return on tangible equity. Um, and that would, and this is uh, coming from Katzie again, that would show real real resilience of the business model. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of different things to look for. We would like to think of the banking sector as being kind of monolithic, but they are very different companies. With very no, different I'm glad companies. you pointed out the differences. So Jack, we had a question from a listener, Prospero, who wanted to know, your view on the financial sector, especially the banks in the U.S. and overseas over the next 12 months. Do you think bank stocks appeal as an investment? What's your view? Yeah, so I do think that uh, bank stocks, particularly in the U.S., uh, or have a large U.S. presence you know, subject to U.S. regulations, um, should be an appeal. Um, we generally don't make the same systemic mistake twice in a row. So I don't think that um, the banks, at least in the U.S., are, are much of an issue. Um, you know, uh, capital ratios are substantially higher. Um, they, as as Ben pointed out, they're they're um, raising their loan loss reserves. They're tightening their lending standards. In fact, one of the things I track is lending standards against uh, corporate bond credit spreads. Uh, and one thing that does concern me is that generally they move together. That as banks tighten their lending standards, corporate bond credit spreads widen, that the yield premium that lenders require to extend credit to lower quality borrowers increases. That's not happening this time. Uh, and so if, if I were to choose who knows their borrowers more, uh, bondholders or banks, I'd say the banks. Um, and so we could see some spread widening. Uh, in fact, we did uh, get out of our uh, high yield bond positions uh, earlier uh, this uh, month, actually, uh, because of uh, that concern. Do you have any thoughts about non-U.S. banks? I think that was embedded in the question. Yeah, um, less, you know, I, I have less visibility there. Certainly, um, you know, we've heard quite a bit about uh, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank, um, you know, big exposure into uh, Deutsche Bank, particular big exposure into industrial Germany. Uh, I think that, you know, given the energy crisis they're facing, industrial Germany, um, you know, is is facing um, obviously big issues um, in the, the coming few quarters. Uh, a in fact, interestingly, a lot of that production will be shifted to the United States. So what may be a, a disadvantage for Germany um, could be an advantage um, for Houston, for example, with BASF shifting a lot of their um, um, fertilizer uh, ammonia production to uh, the U.S. Um, but the fact remains is that the German banks uh, and Swiss have a lot of exposure to Europe, and that's an unknown right now. Um, I'm not an expert there, but it's not an area that I feel like I'm going to want to delve into anytime soon. You know, you must have anticipated the rest of our listener questions because we have one from Tom. Do you think the energy crisis in Europe will continue to benefit U.S. fertilizer producers? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I do. You know, uh, ammonia is very, uh, you know, ammonia, a key ingredient in fertilizer. Natural gas is a key ingredient in ammonia. Um, our natural gas prices are trading at, I think, a third to a fifth of uh of the rest of the world um so clearly we're going to see um a, a, a fair amount of benefit uh from that production shift 
So Jack, you have made noises to me that you are a believer in gold. You've been recommending holding some gold. And there are people out there who know this because we've got a couple of questions about that people want to know. Keith and Larry both have asked if you could talk about gold and gold miners. Sure. I can't speak as much about gold miners as I can about gold. Gold is just a currency in my view. Gold is a currency that pays zero overnight rates. That's it. And in a world where the US dollar was paying zero overnight rate, uh, I felt that last year when we bought uh, our first tranche of gold, uh, I thought that gold was a better deal than T-bills um, because of the, the stability and the fact that the, inc the, the incremental uh, cost, uh, uh, opportunity cost was zero. Uh, in a, and, and gold generally trades off of real rates. Uh, historically, uh, gold will only get you the inflation rate and nothing more, essentially a zero real rate of return. But in a world where at least last year at this time, uh, the real rate on, on T-bills was negative 6-7%, gold, um, based on models that I had put together, that I've been tracking over time, we expected gold to deliver a 30 to 40 percent return in 2021. I think it was down three or four percent. Um, I wrote a piece late last year saying it must be would be gold buyers are now buying crypto uh, because the the demand for gold just never materialized. Uh, we then, uh, when credit conditions deteriorated in the beginning of February, we took another piece out of international equities and bought gold. Um, gold's down probably, I don't know, five, six, seven percent so far this year. That isn't really as, as much of a surprise as, as it was last year because now real rates are rising. And so now that the, you know, the overnight rate is, is uh, you know, moving toward four percent, clearly gold is, is not going to have the same luster as it did last year. Uh, but we're still holding it just because it's an alternative. You know, what, what we're taking it from is U.S. large cap and international, um, both of which down in the 20s. So we're content to hold for now. Uh, but I and it's also a hedge in the event we get uh, some kind of geopolitical tension running off the rails. The, the gold miners, I can't really speak to them. I will say they typically traded a discount uh, to gold itself. Uh, I've always I've always scratched my head wondering why couldn't you buy a whole proven reserve of a gold miner and just sell it all off in the in the futures market because it it trades at a substantial discount to uh, futures. But uh, I've never I've never been able to get that question answered. You mentioned crypto, and I'm wondering what your opinion is. Is it something your clients are interested in? Is it something you find intriguing or even attractive? Well, I mean, if you liked it at sixty thousand, you got to love it at nineteen thousand. <laughs> um, we and thankfully avoided it, but I'll tell you, I mean, it's like the Timex watch, right? You know, nowadays it's taking a licking and it keeps on ticking. Uh, so 19 could be the number, you know, maybe that's a, a, a decent entry point. Uh, you know, so I think as we move forward, uh, that could be um, an interesting play. One of the things I'm not crazy about is the amount of energy that it requires uh, to mine it. Um, but um, but, you know, as a as a, a way to move uh, wealth across borders, 
you can't beat it. Um, you certainly can't do that with gold. Uh, my ancestors did it with diamonds in their in their pockets, but um, you know, crypto, you know, could be the alternative to that. Well, we will find out someday, but maybe not yet today. We had a few other questions. You mentioned energy, and Ian wants to know that given um, given green energy costs, will will this, I'm having a little trouble following the question, but basically, with costs rising for energy, is the inflation boogie of two percent, the inflation boogie of two percent, too low? That's the that's the Fed's inflation target, given what yeah. it's going to cost to transition to a green energy future and so forth. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm 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 skeptical of the you know, of a quick green energy transition. Um, we did a piece last year how we felt that fossil fuel in this country was underinvested. The banks didn't want to be involved. Uh, investors were focused on ESG. Uh, I still believe that um, uh, traditional energy is is underinvested. And even after, uh, you know, even after the, the markets move this year, I still think companies like Chevron are uh, not a bad deal because uh, I think that energy prices will likely stay higher for longer. Does the Fed move that 2% target? That's one where it's like, you know, that's I, I, I kind of torn between what I think they should do versus what they will likely do. I think they should. I don't know if they will. Okay, fair enough. Ben, we had a question I'm going to put to you. Chris wants to know your thoughts on Taiwan Semi. The company is reporting on Thursday. Um, I mean, unfortunately, it's a semi stock. And uh, there's just been a ton of bad news uh, in that, that sector recently. Uh, AMD was last week just saying demand for uh, PC chips is way, way down. Um, for Taiwan Semi, that's a huge problem because they basically make a lot of the chips for, for everybody else. Um, and uh, Susquehanna was saying that uh, they are, you know, they're going to probably uh, beat uh, cons consensus estimates, but uh, I love this line. Um, it's not actually relevant to investor concerns, which are mainly focused on escalating excess inventories among Taiwan Semi's co customers, all while demand trends are weakening. And that's the big problem is that uh, you have inventories of chips have gone way up. Consumers are, nobody's needs is that many of them. And so you're having this, uh, the, the prices come down. It's a, it's a huge problem. Um, and so Taiwan Semi is going to have to uh, cut capital spending. Um, it's going to probably see its its business come down. The big question, of course, is how much of this is priced into the stock, uh, which is down about 42% um, this year. That was as of Friday's close. Um, Susquehanna thinks that there's actually a little more downside to come, but thinks that there could be a buying opportunity later this year. All right. We'll be watching for that on Thursday for sure. So a question for you, Jack, this one from Hal. How significant are mortgage rates and the housing market contraction to the stock market's performance? I think a lot of people are wondering that. Well, it's a, it is a good question. I mean, housing uh, represents 10% of our economy when you consider all of the, the pieces that go along with it. Um, and so it, it is meaningful. Um, even if we don't get housing market decline, which, by the way, we expect there will be. Um, we run a very simple model that looks at uh, median incomes and we take allocate a quarter of median income to a, a mortgage 
amount. We then gross it up uh, by uh, 20% because of a, a down payment. And we say, based on that, what should the median home price be? And then compare that to the median home price. And for the first time in probably 10 years, well, since the financial crisis, uh, our estimate of median home price is now lower than uh, the actual median home price. I think median home price around 380 and our estimate is around 320. So even though rate wages have gone up, like I said, the, the denominator of that equation is really, really important. Um, what does that mean? Um, it means that that um, growth is going to slow and, and there will be um, a profit hit to a, a fair segment of the uh, of the stock market that relies on, uh, on on housing. I mean, think about I think Citi and some of the other banks have already pretty much reduced the size of their mortgage underwriting teams uh, pretty dramatically earlier this year. So do you have a longer term forecast for the market, a year end forecast or a 2023 forecast? Um, we do. We do. Um, our longer term forecast is really just based on earnings growth and dividend yields. Uh, we expect over long periods of time we're not going to get the um, the uh, the benefit of of, of uh, valuation expansion, multiple expansion that, that we did over the last ten years, uh, and so for that reason, uh, our growth estimates for equities. I mean, they're a little bit higher, uh, but they're probably we're probably in the six to seven percent range, whereas last year at this time we were in the four to five percent range. So, um, you know, it's not a, a bad place to be. Uh, but we've also got uh, bonds now uh, offering uh, competitive yields, too. So, you know, think about uh, a couple of years ago where most money managers, most planners were trying to eke out 4% spending from client portfolios for lifestyle. Now you can do that virtually with, uh, with the, you know, a 10-year treasury note. Times change and it's not all bad, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So you have a lower base, but you're making more along the way, but you just need patience to stay with it. That's all. All right. I want to thank you for joining us today and thank you as well to Ben and to our listeners for tuning in and for your many questions. And that will wrap things up for today. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the question is what to do in a bear market. Rush Kapadia, Associate Editor of Barron's, speaks with Doug Ramsey, Chief Investment Officer at the Luthold Group. To put the bear market into context, they'll discuss how to navigate the volatility and identify when to start turning bullish. So thanks again, Jack. Thanks, Ben. And everyone, stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.